This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room. We have one of my absolute favorite guests back on the podcast, Dr. Tanya Kotler. She took the train all the way to Guelph from downtown Toronto, and we recorded in studio, which sounds very fancy, but by in studio, I mean in my basement where I'm trying to build a studio, but, you know, still trying to work out equipment and get a PhD in audio engineering and video. I think we did a pretty decent job, but one day I will have it down pat, I promise. Or I'm going to just have to have somebody with me every time I record in person to make sure things are correct. Like, for example, the Zoom on the camera. Like, I have these expensive cameras to do in-person recordings, and I don't know how to focus them properly so that it's not blurry. It drives me nuts. You also can't tell that it's blurry in the little picture that you see in the back, like the little screen on the back of the camera. And then once you upload it to your computer, you're like, oh, it's not even in focus. Drive me nuts. I think I need to program it to do like an auto focus, but I don't know how to do that. So off to YouTube I go to learn about camera stuff. Anywho, let's get to today's episode. I am speaking with, as I said, Dr. Kotler. She is a child and adult clinical psychologist, an author and speaker who specializes in reproductive mental health, infant mental health, and parent-child attachment. This is the third time Dr. Kotler has been in the mom room on the podcast. Her previous episodes are 144, we talk about attachment science, and episode 295. Because I know you're going to listen to this one and be like, oh my god, I want to hear more. So you can go listen to those two episodes. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Tanya Kotler to the mom room. So Dr. Tanya Kotler, do you say Tanya or Tanya? Tanya. Tanya. Okay. It sounds kind of American when you say it like that. Tanya. When people ask me, I have some, you know, self-consciousness about it. I'm like, I don't know. And I think I say it different every time. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't know. Montrealer? Tanya. Tanya. And then my friend Ariana. I never know if it's Ariana or Ariana. What is it? I don't know. We should She's her. told me. I've asked her, but I just <laughs> forget. Because, like, I don't know why this is so confusing for me. <laughs> Anywho, Dr. Tanya Kotler is here, and you guys sent me, there was a few, okay, we're talking about the daycare episode, which you guys are all familiar with by now, but when that reel went viral on Instagram, I had, and obviously they created that reel to be very clickbaity. Mm -hmm. So many people sent it to me, and I was like, what is this? So anyways, I listened to the whole episode. Tanya has listened to most of it. But I did want to get your general, just like before we get into like specifics, just like your general thoughts on the episode. And it's funny because it's one of those things where like two things can be true at once because I do love some of the things that she brought up. Like when she was saying how she, because a lot of people, you know, they talk about stuff, but they that's where it ends. And she actually like fights to get maternity leaves in the US. And I was like, amazing. Lots of good from the episode, lots of stuff that I do agree with. But I felt like the delivery was very doom and gloom and clickbaity. Almost like they wanted to shock people into being 
terrified and I I don't know. That was my general thoughts about it. So what's your, what vibe did you get? So I love when you said both and because I'm going to come from it. I think to contextualize it, that's my gem, Mm -hmm. right? I'm an adult and child psychologist. Everything I approach for better or for worse is from the mind of both end. I hold in mind the mind of the child, the mind of the parent. And most of the time, because I also specialize in intergenerational trauma or intergenerational relationships, I also hold in mind the parents that came before. So the child self of the parent. And so as you know, big as that feels, okay, so we're talking about daycare and you need to do all that. Yeah, actually. Anything I talk about, whether we're talking about sleeping or feeding or discipline or daycare decisions, I'm holding in mind the the two, the unit. You know, my biggest thing I always say is it takes two to tango and everything we think about should be from the two and mm-hmm. both their minds. Dr. Commissar, I think that that's her name to say correctly. I hope that's how you pronounce it. Dr. Commissar is a psychoanalyst. And so I respect her because that's my background as well. And from a psychoanalytic perspective, and psychoanalytic practice is still very infantocentric. So they're very focused on the mind of the child. It is very much looking at the best developmental outcomes. Parenting is very much looked at from the standpoint of for the child. Mm-hmm. We do things or don't for the child. When we hold it from that perspective, everything she says is is correct. But wait, like, please don't <laughs> shut off now. Um, in the sense that, I'm going to exactly focus on what is just not debatable. Zero to three are the critical period for the development of the attachment bond. That is deeply correct. Mm -hmm. The child has no capacity to regulate their own emotions. They're deeply dependent on the parent's brain to regulate them, to help them develop impulse control and emotion regulation. Absolutely. I'm not going to keep going into everything. Those are like the key importances in her thing. Importances. We're going to go with that. (laughs) And attachment, while it's a critical period for development of the attachment bond, it doesn't develop an end with no entry point to repair it. Why the hell would I have a job? I see 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and mothers who are repairing their relationship with their parents, sometimes without the parents, sometimes just within their own narrative. So, they're using, you know, the therapy relationship or their relationship with their partner as what's called a corrective experience. They are, their brains are constantly, as we know, with neuroplasticity changing and developing and they're developing new ways of relating even into adulthood. And so with our children, we have an ability to change the relationship always. The attachment relationship definitely is forming during that critical period And it's forming moment to moment over time, well past that period. Also, no singular behavior or parenting choice can be responsible for the entire attachment relationship that Mm. develops. I'm going to say that one again. No single parenting decision or behavior can be responsible for the entire attachment relationship that develops. So another factor she says that's super important is when she talks about 
the decision-making if to send them to daycare. So that's one perspective. The other, for all the listeners who've already done that, that's a different question, right? So what she offers is, you know, if you're listening and you're pregnant and you have kinship relationships available to you or finances to hire a babysitter, then maybe daycare is your last resort. I don't disagree with her. No, for sure. However, not everyone listening is preparing to conceive or pregnant. Not everyone has kinship bonds. Remember the family relationships we hold within us. What are those? Maybe you don't have relationships with everyone. Maybe that's a complex thing to even imagine asking. Maybe that's going to make you more stressed, more guilty, more traumatized to have your mother in your home or whoever. And maybe you don't have the finances for the babysitter. Maybe you must work. Okay, so there's so much. But here's a really big one. Maybe you want to work. Mm. Maternal desire matters. So when we think about it takes two to tango, and when we actually think of the research on attachment, beginning with John Bowlby, who is a father of attachment science, he said the secure attachment relationship is a relationship that develops in which both, and he uses the word both in like 1950, both feel joy. The mother's desire matters. Her feeling fulfilled and meaning and joy from her child matters. If this critical period of motherhood, which we know, and so Dr. Komazar doesn't come from the perspective of the mother's mind. If the mother is in this critical period herself of development, what's called matrescence, with brain changes and hormone changes, and we know that that creates inflammation in the brain, and that intersects with stress, where she has this identity change and she feels like she's lost herself, and she's grieving that, and she's depressed, and she deeply wants to remain connected to her old relationships, maybe to her work, and we tell her she shouldn't. So she'll be physically close to her baby. She'll be home. She won't send them to daycare. But she won't engage. She won't be emotionally present. She will, the baby won't feel felt. The baby will be engaging with a flat-faced mom who is unable to be with them. Well, that's going to have massive repercussions. So we need to think of the moment-to-moment interaction, what is happening. If the mother is fulfilled, the finances, all those things that I mentioned— And what's happening outside the daycare? The last aspect of this is we need to actually think about the research on attachment, which talks less about the separation and more about the reunion. So the coming back together again, if you are going to be sending your child to daycare, which is the other one, or if you already did, how did you handle it after the fact? How did you repair when you came back together again? What were the other moments like? So that's important too. What I was thinking the whole time I was watching that episode, I watched it on YouTube. I was like thinking about moms who had maybe a four-year-old, like a child that's now in elementary school, like kindergarten, senior kindergarten, who like their child did go to daycare And the message that stuck out the most to me for that episode was that if your child went to daycare younger than three years old, which most do, I would say, 
then they are going to have an attachment disorder and they are going to suffer from mental illness when they're older. She did basically say that, whether or not that was... So they might have clipped this. I thought of her and I thought, I have to be honest, did she really say that or was that you know, edited in a way, because it was quite a shocking statement to me to make the almost causal relationship that cancels out everything I just said, which is that there is so much else going on beyond that singular decision. How did the mother drop off? She talked about, you know, did she drop drop off with guilt and that she should listen to that guilt and that that guilt is intuition, and I thought a lot about that. And I and I thought, well, I don't talk about guilt that way. I talk about guilt as not actually a feeling. Guilt is a secondary emotion. It is a thought about a feeling. So it is a judgment of a feeling. Is she feeling excited, relieved that she gets to drop off her kid and therefore feels guilty? And we are telling her she's wrong to want to break. Hmm. Well, that matters. Because that's the guilt that she's going to want to avoid. And so when her child comes home, the attachment forms based on reunion, largely. She avoids the child. She resents the child outside of the daycare drop-off. So what are we actually looking at when we're looking at the research? Are we looking at her guilt and how she should have, you know, dropped off her kid? Are we looking at what the world is telling her she should feel as opposed to asking her, for her authentic emotion and allowing her to feel whatever she feels. Yeah. And if she needs a break and wants to go to work, then giving her the strength on, okay, so how do we help you bond with your child when you are with your child? How do we help you be present when your child comes back to you? If we're so wrapped up in the guilt, then we're going to stay stuck and not actually think about how do we repair and come back together and put our phone away and be completely on our child once they come home and spend our weekends and having quality of time. We're dismissing all of that. Yeah. I was like screaming like, okay, so help us. Like, help us then. Like, that's what I kept thinking. Like, we don't live—I find this with a lot of parenting, you know, chatter online— a lot of these situations that they talk about, like, yeah, that sounds amazing, but that's not the life. It's not possible the for way, so many people. The way we live is so different, you know? And I had the the sleep doctor on not too long ago, and that's what he was saying. A lot of people want to say, like, their argument for how we live nowadays and, like, kind of shitting all over it is saying, like, we never used to do that. And he's like, we never used to do a lot of things. It doesn't mean that it's bad. You know, like, our life, the way we live has just changed so much. But that was the biggest thing missing from that episode is, like, so most of us, our children do go to daycare. So help us, you know, have that secure attachment with our child. So let's do that. Exactly. Let's do that. Yes, please. We're going to do it in two parts. So first, we're going to do the, you're listening to this and you're like, wait a minute, I can actually choose a different thing. Should I not be going to daycare? So for that parent who's listening, I don't even know that the answer automatically is no. I think the answer is, what are your circumstances? She does in that episode, if you listen to it, as I said, 
talk about some alternative options like kinship bonds, which is a family, you know, a grandmother, a aunt, someone else, or a babysitter or a shared babysitter. The reasoning for that, she's absolutely right, is because when your child's in distress, they need more immediate responding. And so if it's a home daycare or, or you know, a one, so not all daycares are made the same, no. a one daycare teacher or ECE per three children is going to be very different. And so when we use the word daycare, we're also not always talking about the same thing. Yeah. So if you're selecting, selecting somewhere where it feels psychologically minded, where the people who are taking care of your children have credentials and are trained, where you feel safe and you feel safe sending your children, where the ratio. So all of this actually matters. The second is how old is your child? She lumps zero to three. Zero to three is not lumpable. Mm. Uh, two months, three months old baby in the U.S. is where she's talking. We're in Canada. That That is very different to a 10-month-old baby and very different to a year and super different to 18 months. So how old is your child really matters. Yes, they play in parallel play as she described. So they don't need it for socialization not until 18 months or age two, she's right. But then they do start. So the person who's sending their child at around two to three is beginning to move from parallel play, some of them earlier, to playing with another child. The socialization is helpful. The other thing is after 10 months, they do develop an object constancy. So they are beginning to develop a sense at about a year old of you will come back and then mm. knowing when you leave, when you and you come back. So we do need to actually think about how old they are. Now we'll take the other category of parents. I already sent them. I'm already doing it. I'm already doing it right now, or I already did it three years ago. And now I'm like, okay, the reason that they are, insert the blanks, seem to have ADD, they can't sit straight in class. That was my daycare decision. So now I feel hopeless, powerless, because I already did it. It's over. There's nothing I could do, or so I think. Well, what's the impact of that going to be on you? You're probably, if you feel powerless and helpless, not going to be doing the key things you need to do to engage your child and connect with your child. You're, if we're feeling bad about ourselves, like we made a mistake, like we're not enough, like we have failed, the greatest risk is we may project that onto our child. So our child's behaviors we now see as our fault, but we also almost see it as an extension of us when they do things like we're mad at them for making us look like we made a mistake. Like we we hate their reminders of our failure. Mm. That's not a good setup. Yeah. So if you sent your kid to daycare or if you're sending, if you're sending, we want to be working on the predictability part. We want to be helping them know that that's where they're going. And they probably, for those who are already doing it, know that. If those are about to do it, you can, you know, tell them stories, draw pictures, what to expect, drive by, say to them things like, mommy always comes back. So we're beginning to talk to them about it. We're making it predictable if it's about to start or just starting. If it's already active, you're really focusing on everything else we'll probably talk about today, tuning into them and their feelings, naming it. When we reunion with them, the primary function of the attachment relationship is to regulate your child's emotions. So when they come back to you, if they are 
mad that you left them or they are sad, you're helping them use you to regulate. You're hugging them. You're saying, I missed you too. You are acknowledging their, I I believe you, you missed me today. I see you were sad, if that's what they're showing. Again, if we feel guilty, we may not do that. If we feel this is already a fait accompli, we already did the damage, we may not feel like there's any point Mm. to engaging with their emotion. And there's tremendous point to engaging with their emotion. If it's two years ago and you're the five-year-old, six-year-old parent. It's me. Honestly, you have their lifetime to relate to them. Mm -hmm. So if we get stuck on a one decision we made, that is going to impact your relationship, your stuckness in the past, your fear of what you have done is going to impact the relationship worse than that decision ever would have. Where your mind is, the I messed you up and it's over, is worse so much worse than anything you may have done. It's the collapse of hope. Without hope, without effort, there's no possibility to actually continue for the rest of their lives to have a beautiful, loving, connected relationship. And so there's no, you know, how to 10 steps. I wish I had them. I don't. It's just, I hate to say it, let it go. Yeah, it's, it's almost a, you did that and that's okay. If you're seeing signs of it having impacted them and you really truly believe it was that, then we need to talk about how do we repair attachment problems in the relationship. That That's a different conversation. If we're seeing signs of it and going, oh, I really actually think that did have an impact. They're still mad at me for having left them. They still really struggle with separation. Uh, then we actually will need to talk about how do we help them repair that But that is very different than, I have this fear, but it's not actually showing up. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. 
If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Lil Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. What are signs of in young kids? Like an attachment disorder. Yeah, she uses I, like, I don't, don't want to say that, but like, yeah. Like, neither did I. <laughs> like, what are the, like, what should parents look out for? Like you said, like, oh, like maybe it did affect them in some way. And also, how would you even know that it was daycare and not just... Well, that's what I think I was trying to get at. There's no way to point to the one specific thing. It's usually how the parent is engaging the child all the time. So I talk about this concept of consistency, not constancy. It's not what you always do. It's what you consistently do. And no singular thing does can be responsible for the entire relationship. So if you are consistently dismissive of your child's needs, if you drop them at daycare and that was in context of you otherwise being dismissive, meaning when they fall, you're like, you're fine. Then your child will basically upon reunion and don't overread into this. Like don't start videotaping yourself when you first come back to your child again. You can't, this is very intricate to, I was trained in how to, record and assess attachment and you can't do it. And I mean that respectfully. I really needed to be trained in it. So don't do it at home. But let's say all the time, your child essentially avoids you upon return. That's Mm. one sign of a dismissive, what's called dismissive attachment or avoidant attachment. Essentially, they no longer use you. So remember I said it's about reunion. They no longer use you to help them regulate their feelings. They no longer expect that you can that can't come from only drop-off. That actually probably comes from how you were on pickup and how you were for the rest of the evening and how you were at bedtime and how you were on Saturday morning. That they developed an overall extraction sense of you're unavailable and that they need to take care of themselves. And so the way to the attachment, what happens with attachment is we develop 
ways of connecting according to what we receive. And so the child will develop the sense of almost shutting off of their attachment needs. Forget it, I don't need you. She refers to that, Dr. Komazar, as like the flee response. They're constantly sort of fleeing. And she uses ADD as an example. These things can come together because of nervous system functioning. And she is right to say that most, many of the times we see ADD, it does have to do with early childhood experiences more than just due to brain and chemical. And she is correct. There's a lot of early relationships that goes into the ADD diagnosis. And so that child will be dismissive of their attachment needs and not use you to connect. So what we would do with that if we saw that is that we really have to tune in, beginning with our language, with our facial expressions. It's It's a heavy effort to, you know, get on their floor and meet them eye to eye when they're having a feeling. So being emotionally responsive, which looks like, you know, your child is crying because they asked you to peel the banana and then you peeled the banana and now they didn't want you to peel the banana. And instead of being like, you told me to peel the banana and turning your back, and that came up, you know, easily because I've said that, you may turn around to go, you're so sad I peeled the banana. I see you're sad I peeled the banana. You don't need to fix it. You already peeled the banana. You can't unpeel it. It's not, hold on, hold on, I'll get you another banana yeah. either, right? That's a different kind of parenting. But there is just this moment of acknowledgement. You're, you're, I see you're really sad. Yeah. Do you want a hug? So I'm present with your emotion. That's emotional responsiveness. Doesn't mean fixing. The other way you might see is your child is almost heightened activation. They cry and cry, but they can't quite use you to calm down. So th- when things are wrong, it's very hard for them to settle. This is why I said don't do it at home. Some children have big feelings and it takes them longer for their feeling curve to end. That doesn't mean necessarily that they have an anxious attachment. So we need to be careful. But if you're noticing your child takes longer, is someone who when they feel their feelings feels very intensely, you still want to be, same idea, tuned in and present with them, holding space for their feeling, kind of like a sheltering oak tree. You know, I'm just here. I'm again, not necessarily fixing it. I'm present with your feeling until it passes. And I may, and we'll probably get into this, I may need to set a boundary depending on what's happening. So sometimes in anxious, ambivalent attachment, you'll see hitting, you know, the child will hit you. That doesn't mean they have anxious, ambivalent attachment. You will sometimes see that in anxious, ambivalent attachments. You may need to set a boundary around that, right? Now, you can't teach a child, and we'll talk about this probably too, at a heightened emotion state, you can't teach a child almost anything. They're not, it's not accessible. So in that moment, it's really this kind of connect before you correct. You're still with them. The boundary will come, but you're with them in the feeling. Same thing as before. I, can, I really believe you. You're very angry right now that I peeled that banana. Whew, you're so angry. Really, really didn't want mommy to peel that banana. What we're doing is we're really working on them learning that they're not alone in their feelings. Mm. And what she was highlighting was by leaving them, we're making them believe they're alone in their feelings. Okay, maybe. And maybe if at, at daycare they didn't have the responding sense of responding they deserve, that might have happened. But we can correct that. And we need to know that, that we have moment to moments of experiences of being able to tune into them and make new neural networks that say, there is someone tuned into my feeling. We could do that at 20. 
We can absolutely do that at five or six, even if the early years were impacted, maybe not due to daycare, due to millions of things that could have happened due to a parent illness, due to the child illness. It is a very dangerous thing to say that when something happens that impacts the relationship, we never can repair it. Mm. I, I'm not comfortable saying that. That goes against 60 years of attachment research. The best line from the whole episode was, I think the host asked her, so what about the people listening who their children went to daycare and they're thinking, my child's fine, you know? And she's like, even shipwrecks have survivors. That's what she said. I was like, what? Like, so dramatic. So... (laughs) Instead of acknowledging what you're saying, like... It can be repaired. You can, you know, there's lots of things that play into an attachment relationship. So perhaps those families, you know, yada, yada, yada. No, it was like even shipwrecks have survivors. So what I want to do is respect, ultimately respect her and her knowledge of this research. This isn't my area of expertise. I own it. So here I am just spending, you know, 10 minutes talking about something I know nothing about, hypothetically. (laughs) I know a little. I'm coming from the real attachment standpoint. You know, the the research on daycare and the advocacy in making changes, particularly in the U.S., when children are going, babies are going to daycare so young, six weeks, and they're going maybe from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., that really is something that needs changing. That really isn't okay. For everybody involved. Absolutely. And so, I, you know, I really, again, it's, it's, like contextualizing this, it's really important. We're talking, we're in Canada. Many it's people are different. talking about sending them at the age of, so we need to know age. We need to know circumstance. We need to know what do we mean when we say daycare, right? And so it's really important that we do that and not just assume that daycare means 30 kids to one you know, yeah. adult from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the age of three months. That is very different scenario than you know, age one at a, you know, smaller daycare where there's six kids or eight kids, but there's two ECEs. So it's two on four, very different, half a day, very different circumstance. No, a hundred percent. And honestly, if we could also look at it through the lens of she is somebody that's fighting to try and get this changed in the U.S., which I think we could all agree, like it's literally inhumane that they don't have leave and parental leave and such. So if she, if like this is what it takes. You have to talk about the negative impact to make change. And she is absolutely right. There can be detrimental negative impacts, especially on the mother who deeply wants to be home Mm -hmm. and has no choice. And I think that's who the episode was really for. It was for those who have no choice and the government is not giving them choices. And that, in that sense, just for, it's almost like a word to the wise for listeners. It is for when you have no choice and you deserve choice and she wants choices. And in that sense, you know, all power to Dr. Kumazar. She did exactly what she should do in what she said. No, the U.S., I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. But we're going to switch gears now and talk about gentle parenting because I always have questions. Like, I love parenting content and 
helpful things. And it has really affected the way that I parent. So like, I'm grateful for it. But oftentimes I hear scenarios and, I don't know, like not tips and tricks, but like how you should respond in certain situations. And that's great. But I always find it ends there. Mm. And I'm always left with like, you know, I'll go through a very similar situation that I saw a clip about with Milo. And I'm like, okay, doing like, I'm fully equipped for this situation. (laughs) And I do my thing. And then it like, I saw it on Instagram, veers off in this direction or like something totally unexpected happens. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, now what? One example, and I have dealt with this exact situation, not very often, lucky for me, but the not getting either dressed or, and I mean, when he was in daycare or junior kindergarten, he sometimes he would go to school in his pajamas because I was like, it's just easier. But I'll give the example of the winter coat, like not putting on, let's say you have to walk your child to school and they have to get on their snow pants and their winter coat. It's like minus 30. Again, we're in Canada. So this was that situation. And when you say your piece, and I believe the advice was, I understand, like basically acknowledging, like I I know sometimes Like, it basically sucks when somebody has to tell you to do something and, like, it can be difficult. And I understand that you don't want to put on your coat, but mommy's job is to keep you safe. And right now it's really cold outside and you need to wear your jacket. Or, like, we're not going outside until you put your jacket on. I'm like, great. That's perfect. I love this advice. Great script. But now my child doesn't give a shit about that script. (laughs) Okay. And so here is where I always struggle. It's like, we're always told that you set the boundary. So in this situation, the boundary is you need to put your coat on and then holding the boundary. Okay. But at the same time, school starts at a certain time. I have to, you know, this is just hypothetical, but like get to an office. My boss is expecting me. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of situation that parents find themselves in. And it can be so stressful in the mornings. So how do we hold the, that boundary, but our child still will not listen? So we don't want to bring them out in their t-shirt or whatever it is. We don't want to bribe them and be like, listen, Put your coat on. I'll give you Smarties on the way. You can have iPad later. (laughs) Yeah. You don't do that. Whatever it is. (laughs) Bribe them or lose our shit. So let's start with the idea that, and just, you know, almost holding space for a minute, that all these scripts that are out there are doing or attempting to do three things. And they're not always explaining those three things. Mm -hmm. So the three things that the scripts are trying to do, I've named them the ABCs of parenting, essentially. But we're trying to emotionally attune to our child. That's the A. A is for affect. Affect is feeling. The B is we're trying to set a boundary. I'm going to come back to both of those in a minute. But we're starting to start. We need to teach. It's a, you know, set a boundary when necessary And see, we're trying to teach them or help them to cope because we know that children don't have 
the capacity to regulate their own emotions. We know that children need us. We are essentially their frontal lobe because they don't really have a developed frontal lobe. So they don't have impulse control and they don't have emotion regulation capacities. They need us. So the C is for coping. We're trying to help them cope. Okay. So if we know that, and not everybody always explains that, that's where these scripts come from. They're very much usually emotionally attuned with a boundary built in. But what's being left out is, first of all, these scripts change and how we deliver them changes based on the age and stage of development. So your example was an age and stage of development thing, right? The script kind of really worked pretty simply when my child was in that like, you know, under two phase. Yeah, well, because in two, uh, you know, that one to two stage, if you think of, I love that age, like that 18 month old, two year old age, like you can love it when you're far away from it. Um, <laughs> they're really just curious about the world. You know, that's a stage of your child throwing food on the floor from their high chair. And they're like, oh, look, it falls. I'm going to do it again. It falls. Oh, cool. Gravity. Right. Like they're figuring out their impact in the world and that things can have an impact on each other. Really cool. The relationship between things. They're figuring out relationships between you and me, between me and food, and so on. And so at that age, it's kind of simpler to do A, B, and C. We're emotionally tuning in by going, you're having fun throwing the food on the floor. Plop, plop, whatever. And then we might say, I think you're done eating. That's it. That's the boundary. I think you're done eating. And we take the plate. And they're young enough. They're like, okay, done eating. You took my plate. Like they're not overly resisting yet. You taking the plate at that age, like you took the plate, they're done eating because we're not going to allow them to just throw the food on all the time. And so the C, the creative coping with the removing of their plate, we're setting the groundwork for it, but we may not need to do too much yet. Okay, now we fast forward in age. We're talking about that like three, four age. I call it all will, no skill, three to five. All will, high emotion. (laughs) So at that age, it's really important because what's happening is they want to be recognized. It's see me, recognize me, see me as separate to you, see me as having a separate mind to you, my own opinions, desires, feelings, wants. I don't want to wear a coat. You want me to wear a coat, okay? That's what this stage is. And what they need is recognition, okay? Now, remember my two to tango parenting approach is recognition of me, recognition of you. My mind matters and so does yours. So in that moment, we're actually in a conflict of recognizing minds because in my mind my job is to keep you safe so all that stuff we read but we need to know the backdrop to it right but also you show up without a coat and people are going to judge me and I'm going to be embarrassed and what are people going to think and I have to get to work and I'm actually anxious all of this matters as the backdrop how am I feeling as parent as I need to get you ready you how you're feeling child is I don't want to wear that It restricts my movement. I'm very uncomfortable. I get really hot because then I go inside a building with no air circulation and I'm wearing my coat for longer than I should be and I don't want to wear my coat. And all that comes, the soundbite is, I don't want to wear my coat. Yeah. And so the script is we're noticing their feeling. We're naming it. I know you don't want to wear your coat. It's so puffy. And so the first part, the A, is actually attempting to connect to their emotion. And remember when I said a little earlier, or if people didn't don't listen to the whole episode, when we're attuning to their emotion, we're not fixing their emotion. We're helping them feel felt. 
We're helping them feel that we recognize their inner world, that we can imagine what they feel like. That helps them feel not alone in their feeling. So we don't have to do anything about that feeling. That's one of the biggest misnomers. So the concept is, I say, I know you don't want to wear your coat. I believe you. And the kid's supposed to go, okay, now I'll wear it. Exactly. Like, no, that's not what happens. <laughs> okay. And so that's where we shift into B, the boundary. So we don't always explain the relationship between A and B. The relationship between A and B is that you need to do both. Gentle parenting is a misnomer. Gentle parenting sounds like it's gentle and therefore no boundaries. Mm. That's permissive parenting. We're not talking permissive parenting. Actually, there's a ton of research on how ineffective and even potentially harmful permissive parenting is. It gives a child way too much control. They're not in an age to have control, and they feel very unsafe mm. with all that control. So the boundary is important. So what the A is supposed to do is help them not feel alone in their feeling. That's calm, face, soft tone voice that says, I really believe you. That coat is so hard to move in. You really don't like wearing your coat. And my face is showing, and my body language is showing, and I'm on my knees, and I'm face-to-face. -face, and they go, I know, hey, and I throw the coat down, and it didn't work. You're still right on script. Mm. That's the first mistake most parents make. Shit, it didn't work. Uh, and then, I was supposed then to Then you freak out. And then we like, set the boundary. Here's mistake two. Yeah. Mistake two is that boundary for many people, the word is associated to consequence. So I'm not setting a boundary if I'm not giving a punishment. If you don't put on your coat, there's no iPad. That's punitive. That's not what we mean by boundary. The origin of the word, if I had a Webster's Dictionary, is something around teaching. We're teaching. This is a teachable moment. And we're teaching them. That's what the boundary means, that they wear coats when they go outside. It's not a big deal. They just need to wear a coat. And so if they're refusing, this is where gentle, they're younger than you, they're smaller than you, you're gently putting on their coat for them. Or you're gently taking them out of the bath, not in anger, because you're still an A, tuned into their emotion. I really believe you don't need to wear your coat. And as you're saying that, you're putting on their coat. And we need to wear our coat. Sorry. It's cold <laughs> outside. And we start to put them on and zip them up. And we physically can do that without much force. This isn't a force situation because we're calm. The C, so they're, they're thrashing, which makes it much harder, is that if we have it in us, the ability in us to be creative, creative coping, that will help everybody. Because children do really well. It helps regulate them when the emotion is light. And so if we can say, oh my God, your coat is lava. You know, there's lava. Don't put on your coat. The coat is lava. Oh my God. You're never going to put on your coat. It's lava. And they're laughing and they put on their coat. No problem. Oh my, should I put your coat on upside down? I'm going to put your coat on upside down. And I hold them upside down if I'm physically able to do that. And they put their coat on. Or we teach them, you know, flip, flip, potato chip. Do you know that? No. The coat's backwards and they learn how to flip it on backwards. There's probably a YouTube video for it. And like, it's so funny and they love putting on their coat that way. And there we go. So the C is the creative coping. That moves us into your kind of last, your question had like multiple parts to it. Yeah. Your last part of your question, which was, how do we, so the, how do we hold the boundary? We may firmly need to just do it. But 
what about how do we stay calm? Okay, so that becomes more about us and them. That creative, that C coping, that being playful, we may not be able to do that. That goes on. That's the what's going on with me part. That's the what do I need to be able to do everything Tanya just said. Am I able to? If I'm getting agitated, I'm getting angry. And that will happen, right? That was like my banana example. Sometimes we will respond with, you asked me to, oh, you know, peel the banana. And so I did. Put on your coat. We got to go. Mommy's late, right? That also comes, you know, easy to me to say because I've done it. That never works. Oh, that tends to escalate them. And that goes back to A. It escalates them because they don't feel felt in their emotion. They feel in trouble for having a feeling. They feel alone now in their feeling. And so they escalate and we make a connection. Oh, that script doesn't work because look where we landed. No, what probably didn't work is either we became too punitive at the B, Mm. we started to say threats, or we got angry because it was hard for us to handle it. And so they end up feeling alone. That's why it didn't work. It doesn't always work on its own also because they're their own separate person. And so it's remembering that our job isn't to fix it, that sometimes we're going to be putting on their coat and taking a crying kid outside into the car. And that doesn't mean it didn't work. Right. We, that still means we did all our ABCs. It still means we tuned in. It still means we set the boundary. It still means we tried to put their coat on as a rocket ship and they're still crying when we got in the car. And then you are setting in motion the I'm not alone in my feelings because as we're taking them, if we manage to stay calm, we're still saying, I really know you don't want to wear your coat. I really know you don't want to go to school. I really believe you. You're so upset right now. And we're putting our hand on their knee and we might try a new creative coping once we're in the car. Should we listen to the silly song that we always listen to? And they snap out of it, and sometimes they even don't, and those are the hardest drop-offs. And so some of it is also acknowledging that you can't always fix the emotions that you are going to face. That is not your job. And if we expect that to be our job, we're going to be angry a lot of the time because we're going to feel like failures. Yeah. Our job is to have them feel felt, not alone in their feeling, and with boundaries is to teach them how to be in this world. And to teach them ways of coping with their feelings when they're upset and to give them tools, which we can, you know, get to, and to give them alternatives to the ways they're acting. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. I feel like the biggest misconception when people are reading about these like scripts or, you know, tips for parents and how to deal with things is that it's going to stop the emotion and like what's happening or like the behavior like in its tracks and that it won't happen in the future. Do you know what I mean? When when like, and I think that's where parents get so frustrated because that's almost how they're selling it. It doesn't do either of those things. Yeah. Your three to five-year-old child is meant to constantly call you to recognize them. Yeah. And the only way they're going to have you recognize them is by constantly calling you towards how they're different than you. You want them to go to bed. They don't want to go to bed. You want them in the bath. They don't want to go in the bath. They're trying to have you see their mind as separate. It's actually amazing And our job is to acknowledge, be aware of their separateness, and teach them how to deal with those big feelings about not always being able to be in control, which are really hard. We have them too. Okay, the next thing is when your child says something really mean to you. So I hate you. Sometimes I get like, I love daddy, but I don't love you. I'm like, thank you so much. (laughs) So... I know the whole thing around you don't want your child to feel like they're responsible for your feelings. So if they say, like, I hate you or something really mean, you don't want to be like, oh, that really hurts my feelings. Like, mommy's sad now. I understand that. And I feel like there was a whole thing in the attachment training about that kind of parenting when like the child the feels... The parentified child. The yeah, child, they yeah, feel yeah. responsible for you. Yeah. So I understand it like big picture. But then at the same time, when something like that happens, I also want him to understand as a human going through life that when you say things like that to people, you do hurt their feelings. And like what you say does matter. So... When this comes up in parenting advice, I'm like, okay, great, I get it, but then what? Like, how do you then teach your child that it's not okay to say those things? It's like it's missing the teaching piece. So do you have any advice? Well, it goes back to, in some ways, what I talked about with the coat, right? That the boundary... I say this a lot and I feel like people understand me and then I realize that they don't. (laughs) So that the boundary isn't a punishment, right? So when our child says, I hate you, because that's a really good one, or I don't want you anymore. 
I've been told that one. It hurts. It goes right deep in when they say that. And we, in some way, want them to know how it feels. That's more about us. Okay. So the first question is, how do you feel? So I talked about with the coat, reflecting on their mind, what's going on with them. They're separate, right? And in the beginning of the podcast, I talked about the two to tango. Parenting is always your mind and their mind. So the coat, we're going, what's going on in their mind? They want to be separate. With I hate you, what's going on in your mind? So for a lot of us, especially if it's, I like daddy better, right? It's this, I'm not enough. I'm unlovable. I am failing something. It's some narrative about us. That narrative might have roots. That narrative might be how we felt growing up. I need to be perfect. I'm messing up. What else can I do right? It might also be that ungrateful brat. You know, I do all this stuff for yeah, them. That's where right? my mind goes. I'm always like, or sometimes he'll be like, you never play with me. And I'm like, I always play with I'm you. I'm the one that plays all the time. So it, it's getting at our core sense of ourselves, yeah. And then we're upset with them because they, by extension, are now making us feel badly about ourselves. So the first thing is actually to take care of ourselves and our emotion. Quite simply, this isn't about you, right? And so when we say to them, you can't say that, you're, you're, being, you're mean, you're ungrateful. I remember there was once a time where my daughter, I always worry one day my kids are going to le- listen to these podcast episodes, <laughs> so I'm sorry ahead of time. My daughter picked up, I picked her up from a birthday party My daughter's a lovely kid, okay? And they pick her up from a birthday party and they give her the loot bag and she goes, that's it. And I was horrified. I was so embarrassed. And and so I was, so here's, what was I feeling? So embarrassed. What I always, like, we are so good in the home about, you know, gratitude and appreciation and she's so loving and blah, blah, blah. that's what she says. And so I say all of that as we're walking to the car, which is probably worse than what she said because I'm probably hearable. <laughs> the psychologist going, you know, we say thank you and we don't, <laughs> whatever. And it was about me. Yeah. It was about how I felt I was being represented. And whether there was an audience or not, when our child says that, that's what it triggers in us, what it means about us, our own ego. And in those moments, we need to know that because otherwise we're not going to be able to respond. And if we do respond that way, because I have and I did, you know, as soon as we catch it, which is what happened to me as I got in the car and I put on my seatbelt and I was like, oh, wait, you know, psychologist self came back online and they turned around and I said, honey, can we have a redo? And she's like, what's a redo? Mommy just got really angry because it didn't feel good for mommy when I heard you say that, tell me, why did you say that's it? It's okay. I'm not mad. I was confused. And that made me feel mad. I, mommy's job is to take care of my feelings. That's not your job. That's my job. So children can have an impact on how we feel, but they're not responsible for how we cope. That's the difference. It's not that they can't make us feel things. It's that they're not responsible for how we cope with things. That's our responsibility. So I can feel angry, hurt when you say I hate you. 
But my job is to cope with, notice now that I'm angry or hurt, and cope with my anger and hurt. Not put on you to help me cope. Because I am the adult with the adult brain. But did you leave it at that? No. With the, no, no. the so loot bag thing? No. So I turned around and I said to her, tell me what was it? And she said, well, the girl at the birthday party was dressed from, you know, from top to bottom, she described, in a cheerleading outfit. She was wearing a skirt and a top. And she had the pom-poms and the socks and the scrunchie. And I look in the loot bag and it's the pom-poms. And I go, did you think that because she was wearing everything, you were going to get everything? Yeah. And it was just a simple associative moment. Like, the girl was wearing thing head to bottom. She loved it. Yeah. She wanted that. And she only got the pom-poms. So, like, adults interpret what she said as something completely different. And in her mind, yeah. it was, like, an actual meaning of, that's it. Like, or, or is there more? Like, I'm going to get the outfit because I like the outfit. And it was simple. And it was sweet. And it was desire. And we all have a right to desire. And she wanted that cheerleading outfit. And she even envied maybe that cheerleading. I would love to have that. And there's so much we can then do with that. You know, okay, maybe Christmas is coming up. And is that her choice? Or we explain that we don't always get what we— There's so many ways we can teach in that moment. But moving to your next point, how do we teach? I wasn't going to teach from a place if she was upset— I wasn't going to teach in that moment. It had to be in a moment of calm. We have to connect before we correct. So if we use your example, I hate you, how that makes me feel and me coping with how that makes me feel needs to be done separate to our child. The response to that is, I hear your words. I believe you. You're feeling big, big feelings towards mommy right now. You're feeling big, angry feelings maybe towards mommy right now. That's it. When we say, That's so mean. We self-correct as soon as we catch ourselves because that's us acting in anger. We're allowed to feel anger, but we need to cope with our anger on our own. Later, when they're not so mad at you, when that moment isn't hot, when they said, I hate you, whatever it was about, we may talk about kind words. Or if they hit you, we may talk about kind hands. While they're hitting you, you're not like, you don't hit me because it hurts my body. They're not, they can't actually absorb that at that time. At another time, during calm connection time, you might say, no, hitting hurts bodies. So what are, that's that ABC, that's the C. What can we do when we're angry? What are alternatives? And we teach them. We have to teach them how to cope. Can they stomp their feet? Can they... There, in my house, you're allowed to stomp your feet. I don't mind stomping feet. I, I don't like screaming, and I, hitting's not okay. Noise is hard for me. So I teach, literally teach my kids that. You could stomp. You're angry, you can stomp. You can punch the couch. Allowed to be angry. Anger is allowed. How you cope with anger is what we're teaching. Mommy's allowed to be angry. Mommy's not allowed to yell at you, though. And if I do, I say sorry, because that's how I cope with anger. I might need to go to the bathroom and make sure you're in a safe place and punch the air because I can't yell at you and get my anger out of my body because I deserve to be able to do that and then come back to you. So I'm allowed to be angry, but I'm responsible for how I cope with my anger, not you. So what about the response? I always say, and maybe this is terrible, when he says, because usually when he says, like, I hate you, it's usually... Like, he's not super worked up. Mm -hmm. Like, it's more like, or like, I don't like you. Or, you know, it's very like, usually like a somewhat calm Mm -hmm. situation. It's not like a meltdown. Okay. And I'll be like, oh, well, mommy loves you. Is that bad? 
What happens in that is just, I think there's a desire. Like, what are you feeling when you say that? If you really try to reflect on why I want him, like, basically my thing was like, oh, like you feel those feelings towards me, but mommy still loves you. Like, even though you have those feelings. So the irony is when we just ask ourselves why we get closer to what we maybe want to actually be saying. So to say to him, yeah, those are, you know, big feeling words. Strong feeling words. No matter how you feel, I always love you. That's what you just said. Yeah. That delivery would land better. Right. Because it'll be more accessible to him. And it also has no other alternative meanings. Your real meaning to that is not, I need to hear you say I love me, which it could sound like. It's just... I want you to know I'll always love you, no matter in your anger or in your sad. That's a great thing to say. Oh, okay. So one of the interesting things that we often don't do enough is just ask why. Why did I respond like that? Why do I feel like that? What just got triggered in me? And usually that's going to bring you to your thing that works for you to say, and it'll be closer to the connection that they need to hear. So it's what's going on in their mind, what's going on in mine. What it sounds like what's going on in yours is... At this moment, he's not very angry. I think he's just saying it. It's not a big deal moment. So I'm not going to give it too much attention. Right. Sounds right on the money at the moment. It's right, it's right what he needs. It's not a big deal, so I'm not going to make it big. Those are big words. You could just say, no matter how you feel, I always love you. Okay, great. That's one of the greatest messages we can give our kids. In all your feeling states, in all your words, my love doesn't change. Okay, before we end this episode, I just want to say, so this morning, he started saying, I don't like girls. Like, I don't like girls. I only like boys. And I'm like, I like let it slide for a little bit, but he just kept saying it, you know? And I said, oh, like, well, I, I said a bunch of things because he wouldn't stop saying it. But some of the things that I was saying was like, oh, well, that's too bad because like half the people in the world are girls. And so you're missing out on a lot of friends, like, you know, and then he kept saying it, he kept saying it. And I said, oh, well, mommy's a girl. Sisu's a girl. Auntie Liza's a girl. Poppy's a girl. Like, are you saying that you don't like us? And he was like, no. Like then he got, you know, and I was like, okay. And then I said, why are you, why are you saying that? And one of his friends at school, he's like, well, so-and-so says that. And I said something about like, well, you shouldn't just like say things because other people are saying them. Like I told him to like be a leader and not a follower, but I was like, he's not going to understand. <laughs> but what I said to him, I was like, because the last two nights we've watched Taylor Swift eras mm. tour and he loves it. I said, you know, who's a girl is Taylor Swift. You know, and I brought that up to him and like I could see like his wheels turning. But again, it's one of those things where like he's saying something mean and I don't want him to say those things like at school or and I said yesterday I picked you up from school and you were playing with so and so and she's a girl. You know what I mean? To try and like get so get you're the talking message. about at the beginning of your question, you were like, How do we give the teachable moment yeah. of words can hurt? So in a calm moment, we may, first of all, we may actually say that, right? So if it's not an angry moment, we may say that words can hurt people's feelings. If it's a really calm moment and there's access, we can start to teach them about kind words. We can read books. There's a lot of really good books around using kind words. 
That's important. It's a teachable moment. The other thing is actually you're bringing up another big thing, which is what it triggered in you. Parents like to think that we're the only, and this goes all the way back to the daycare conversation. So perfect way to close it up. That we're the only influence on our children's lives, Mm. right? So the other thing to kind of full circle this is we almost want to believe that. It gives us a semblance of control because at the end of the day, we all want well-adjusted children. But the fact of the matter is we're not. Their friends are an influence and teachers are going to be an influence positively too. And they're going to be hurt. You know, Taylor Swift songs (laughs) tells you that. It never grow out. (laughs) They're going to get hurt by others, even if we do all the things right, even if there was a way for that to be possible, which there isn't. And so they're going to learn words from their friends and behaviors from their friends and noticing what that triggers in us. That's not what I've taught you or that's not what we do here or all those feelings that it brings up in us that in some way we failed and in some ways we're not doing a good job. And that's all our ego. And so checking that as much as we can, knowing that all of that is part of the developmental process and in some way trusting your process of multiple opportunities of your child learning from you about kind words, but that they're also going to learn that out of the home. Mm -hmm. When they say the mean words to their friend, no matter how many times you teach them about kind words, and then their friend cries, and then they do it again, and their friend cries again, and they learn empathy, and they feel bad because you've attuned to their emotions. And the number one way you're going to teach your child empathy is not with words. It's not by you saying, don't say mean words. Very little gets through that way. It's by them feeling felt Mm. because you feel their feelings and they know what it feels like to be felt. They're going to develop a sense of caring about other people's minds. So when they make someone cry as they get older, you're going to feel bad because the best way you teach empathy is through the secure attachment relationship. And so all the words are never going to be as important as you showing up. So what would the the script be. So Milo says, I pick him up from school today. He's in the car and he's like, I don't like girls. What's my script? He might just hear it in that moment. I, you don't like girls. I hear you. You can ask him why. Why? Why don't you like girls? Yeah. I just don't like them. Okay. Okay. We're going to put on Taylor Swift now. <laughs> you don't, every moment also doesn't have to be a lesson. Right, 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 this, right, right. You know, if it, 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 they might be just trying to get a rise out of you. Someone else might have just said it. Yeah. You'll know intuitively when, oh, this is a thing. Yeah. And maybe we, you know, we want to talk about it or explore it or understand it or read a book later about kind words. But we don't have to use everything they say as this moment that we better parent this right. Yeah. Because the best way they're going to be parented right is by how you make them feel. Yeah. Well, another great conversation this time in my basement. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Tanya took the train into Guelph, and I'm so happy that you did. That was such a we can do a hard things moment. Yeah, like, look at us. Yeah. <laughs> thank you.